<laughs> Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 28th of September. I know this because it's my mother's birthday. She is 70 today, so happy birthday, Mom. Ooh, happy uh, birthday. <laughs> yeah, we birthday. just gave her a call and we made a video for her and uh, I sent her some Berkeley clothes. Do you know what can you imagine do you know what Berkeley clothes are? Like if yeah. I say Berkeley clothes for a seventy year old woman, what would you what would you expect? Like Eileen Fisher. Because <laughs> oh, you're going the you're going the tech route. Like you're going the tech yuppie route. Like, yeah. <laughs> Andy, what do you think? I thought you meant like universally like a sweatshirt that says you Berkeley on it. Uh, that you know, honestly, that's probably what most seventy-year-olds in Berkeley wear. Yeah. They wear some sort of cal gear. Yeah. Uh, both of you are wrong, though. Like seventy-year-old woman Berkeley gear is like vaguely Japanese, uh, heavy drapey. I guess it's yeah, a seventy-year-old. Yeah, that's Eileen Fisher. Oh, that is okay. Okay. What is Eileen Fisher? I I, I want to stop the show and look it up because then I I just think that Eileen Fisher is like the same thing as a. Uh, I don't know, Ann Taylor Loft or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, no. Sure. I, I see. That's why you were saying. No, Eileen Fisher is like slouchy Asian, but at the mall. Uh, yeah, and it's okay. like, yeah, you, you know, nailed it like, then. You nailed yeah, it. Like, <laughs> crepe, like crepe silk dresses that are like $150, <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah, it's that's about the price range, too. It's like <laughs> they have like a $180 jacket and... It'll be beautiful, and on the inside, it'll yeah. have like Tibetan prayer flags. Because I'm the same spiritual age as your mom. Yes, <laughs> this is my preference as well. Oh man, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> they, they have like ten of these stores in Berkeley, especially around where I live, which is where the older population of Berkeley lives. And um, I actually like the clothes a lot. I think they look cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's the thing you don't. They don't really wear the uh, sort of Patagonia REI thing mm-hmm. here. It's more of the, you know, I think this is like one tick up from that. Maybe not in price, but one tick up in terms of stylishness. For sure. And it's like kind of like, you know, like Ursula Le Guin. Like you can, yes. like, how do you pronounce that? Like you can, so she lived in Berkeley. Yeah. Actually, her house just sold. Oh my that's God. What, that's the news. Obsessed with how, that house. how expensive it was, right? Yeah. yeah. First of all, that house like sold for twice what it was supposed to sell oh for and i think no 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 i mean it didn't sell for it was listed at four million dollars there's no way that house worth four million dollars i think somebody probably paid a lot more just because it was her house yeah i don't quite get that is she really that famous of a writer yeah uh, okay <laughs> i i didn't i did not know who she but was also it's like just berkeley the berkeley market the berkeley market like is crazy though. The house oh, the, the, yeah, but there, like, there's some houses that there are many houses like that where it's like sort of like you know like dark wood siding and inside it's all dark wood and it's beautiful and they're not that expensive. I don't know why that one was so expensive. But apparently, people are big fans of this writer I'd never heard of. But Apologies then I did some re- to all Ursula Le Guin oh, wow. stands. On- <laughs> I did some I did some research and I realized oh she would be dressed you know like the jacket I sent my mom <laughs> to to send that full circle. Um, all right, so how how are you two doing? Good. Thick of the semester, so it's pretty exhausting at this point. How, are you? Yeah. How? What percentage of classes are Zoom classes? For us, almost almost all of them, yeah. So, and but you are teaching in person some. A little bit. The exhausting thing is like everything is by email now, so it just like piles and piles and oh, piles. Yeah. And it's okay. like there's personal, there's work, there's just like turning your assignment. You have to wait through like thirty emails for one assignment, you know. 
That sounds so, horrible. I don't know. The Tell only thing about- worse would be if like somebody was like their solution was. Let's make a Slack group for the class. That would be <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> you would get think... nonstop, nonstop uh, emails. <laughs> 2 a.m. There would be, be all these like controversies about how like you know one group of students started their own secret room and won't invite the other <laughs> students in. It would be miserable. Um, Tammy, how's your how's your uh, part time uh, in person and part time Zoom teaching going? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Pretty much, I'm always in person unless a kid is in quarantine, which is a growing number because of no contact way, really? tracing. Well, because mm-hmm. contact tracing, so everybody's like a close contact, you know? So is it um, working? Like numbers I are down? Guess. I mean, no, the numbers are record. We have record numbers in Montana right now. It's like Oops. over 12,000 people. Like that's not that much in a, you know, populous place. But for here, it's like 10 times as many as there were a couple months ago. That's probably like the entire voting population of Montana. Um, <laughs> you have to wait, so that. wait, do you you just have students who email you and they're like, "I'm sorry, I'm in quarantine, I can't come to class," or yeah, and then I turn on, and then I have like this video system where I have three cameras. Yeah, and it's like I, right, Andy. I, have, I haven't done that yet, but I, I probably will have to at some point. The simulcast. What, what's that mean? Yeah, meaning you're talking live to people in person, but at the same time students in their room could watch at the same time. So you don't have to do like two lectures. Oh, so So you have like a camera on you, but you have a camera on the room so they don't feel isolated. It's like, is that 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 bad? Is it, is it annoying or weird? Or did you get used to it yet? I, I don't know. I think it's kind of annoying. I also don't really like being on camera. It's kind of, you know, super panopticon-y. Um, okay. Let's get to the first topic of our show. Which is, uh, I was up to like three o'clock last night watching uh, Itaewon Class, which is a Korean drama that's on Netflix. And um, I want to talk about it because uh, I think that it was interesting for a few reasons. But um, Tammy, I, when I texted you guys about it this morning, like you've, you've seen this show, right? Um, I fucking love Itaewon Class. It is one of the best dramas, period. Is it, is it, it's one that was produced entirely by Netflix, right? Like it was, it's a Netflix original. So it's not one of these ones that they uh, buy and then repurpose. Is that right? Yeah, I think Netflix was involved originally. It, it started off as a, as a webtoon, webcomic. It's a webcomic. Yeah. Okay. And so it's based on that. And, but Netflix has a huge presence in Korea. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but seriously, guys, this, this is like the greatest <laughs> gay drama. What's the... like, everyone should watch it. It's so like cool and progressive, and it looks so good. It's awesome, and the music is very good. I think <laughs> the music, yeah, the music is intense. I love I'll put the it theme song. Um... Like, we'll play it on the show at some point. I wanted to talk <laughs> about it for a couple of reasons. The first is because you know it's on top of mind because I had just seen it and I was glad that you had seen it. Tammy, like, why, before we get into it, why don't you just tell, like, I, I'll, I'll just talk about the plot a little bit. And since I'm not all the way done, I won't spoil anything. But basically, mm-hmm. there's this kid in high school and he's his dad works at this big food conglomerate, right? Like the enemy in a lot of these things is like the conglomerate and like something corporation. So in this one, it's Jonga Corporation, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not real, but I think it's supposed to be a stand-in maybe for, I don't know. I don't know, Otogi or something like that, right? Like, so they, uh, he gets in a fight at school and then his dad <laughs> with the, with the son of the head of the conglomerate 
and then the head of the conglomerate tries to shame him, but he refuses to kneel in front of him. And then the kid that he punched, whose dad is a powerful guy, kills his dad. You know, and then and then and then Andy's he, like, uh, "What is this?" And then, yeah, Andy's staring at the walls. Andy's staring at the ceiling. Charts in my head. And then, yeah. and then the and then the kid whose dad just died hunts down the rich kid and is about to kill him, but then he stopped. Right, and then he has to go to jail for seven years. And during the seven years, he studies the rich guy's book on how to be successful. And he comes out and he decides. I'm going to I'm going to create a food empire myself from the beginning, just like this man did, because like the the guy is like a self-made man, the rich guy, and so then he starts a bar in Itaewon, which is like a, you know, it used to be where the U.S. military base is still is, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, it's and, moved, but yeah, it's moving. Seoul and, oh. It's like and, uh, Central, right? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so like, great. if you go there, you'll time. see. Um, a lot of white people, you'll see a lot of Americans, you'll also see a lot of like Nigerians, you'll yeah. see a lot of people from Africa, you'll see a lot of people from Bangladesh, like, you know, totally. like all over the world. That's where the people congregate. And then you'll also see some of the nicest houses and the most expensive properties in Seoul, which is like up on the hill on on uh, the mountain. But, um, you know, it's sort of a nightlife place. It's also where all the gay bars are, which is mm-hmm. why there was that big controversy with like COVID outbreak there yeah. because it in was the gay in, the, club. in the gay clubs. Um, anyway, so he starts his bar. I don't know how long I'm going to go on for this, but like, I feel like I'm like one <laughs> third of the way done with the plot. <laughs> yeah, I'm in episode It's <laughs> 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 actually episode two. We're through two episodes. But I'm almost done with the setup. And then he starts a, um, a definitely not episode two. That's still episode one now that I think about it. So he starts this bar <laughs> and then... Um, and then the show is uh, presumably, I think, is about them is about like a small business, right? The running and, and the success of a small business. And so, Tammy, like, what about the show is so good to you? So it's I called it a very progressive show. So first of all, they have like a black Korean character, and they have um, a Korean trans character. Yes, and there's like an exploration around like transphobia, homophobia and like racism, which is really fascinating. And it has because it's based on a webtoon, they do a really good job of adapting it. So you sort of feel like you're kind of in like a manga verse. But yeah, it's also yeah, yeah, works yeah, yeah, with live yeah, action, yeah. like the styling of it is very good. And um, I love like the really strong woman characters. So in addition to Jay's like plot setup, there's also, of course, like a love triangle. Yeah, yeah um, several love triangles. Of course, yeah. And like, you know, and with like the overlaps of rich and poor and all and like orphans and, you know, the usual stuff that's in like all of these like East Asian dramas. But um, there's one particular girl character who's like the young kind of go-getting, like kind of asshole, like I'm going to make it ambitious manager girl. And she's awesome. Yeah, she's described as like a sociopath on the show. Yeah. <laughs> And she has uh, a lot of social media followers. It's like the big thing with her, right? <laughs> anyway, the reason the, Andy is Andy's like scratching Andy. his chin. No, I'm but, trying to think because so many of these dramas wind up are basically at the core, basically business dramas, like small businesses yeah. that overcome yeah. large corporations. That's what's true of like a lot of these. So I'm just trying to think: is is this is that the case with this one? Definitely. Yeah, for sure. That's it's the idea. Extremely capital. And does it kind of tell it? what's the word telegram telegraph that it's ultimately about the small business overcoming that giant conglomerate by the end uh, uh, i gotten uh, to the end but that's throughout the whole thing i right? won't say right. too much but sort of yeah 
So it's yeah. not progressive in that way. So the yeah. reason why I wanted to talk about this is because I, that, Andy, I, that's what I wanted to talk about, which is essentially this idea that, you know, why are so many East Asian dramas so, like, it's not capitalist in the sense that, like, uh, you know, it upholds capitalism. You know, it's not in this, it, there's <laughs> no, like, there's no, like, hidden agenda here. It is the oh. most explicitly <laughs> capitalist thing that you could possibly <laughs> make, which is, like, this guy gets out of jail and the whole show is about him smarting, starting a small business. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole idea is how to get more customers for the business, yeah. you know? It feels like a video game, right? Yeah. Like it seems like somebody made a video, <laughs> like funny. one of these simulation games and you have to be like, all right, I need to invest in marketing, you know? Or like, uh, now oh, the marketing investment didn't work. Oh no, I have a kitchen fire and it wiped out. Like, you know, like that game, lemonade st- the Lemonade Stay game it's that like you would play. Sim like the City, you play one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, and there, it makes, there's no, like, uh, there's no real examination of that so far, right, in the show. There's no examination of, you know, well, well mo- there's no simple questions like, will money buy you happiness? In this one, <laughs> like, it's, like, very clear that money is the only thing that's going to buy this guy happiness. And even the girl that he has had a crush on for 10 years, right, who is, like, the most ruthless capitalist out of all of them in some sorts of ways, like, she says, uh come back to me when you're rich, right? Like she's a former orphan who made it. And then he, there's this moment where they're going to hook up, but then he says, I'm not rich enough yet. You know, and then he, <laughs> this is also so, such a chaste drama like this i feel it feels like in terms of sexuality it's a drama from like 15 years ago it's like there's like one kiss that i've chaste. gotten through in the first four hours yeah. and the kiss was like they made it seem like it was like you know like the, the uh like the sex scene in that like french yeah. that in that french movie that everyone got mad about um uh is so like, is this east asia specific though because i think a lot of the prestige drama in the united states is also Right, like the wire is based, or not the wire, but maybe the wire. Breaking Bad, right, is basically about a small business. That okay, uh, it's well, yeah, but uh, wait, Andy, did you watch we it? Don't, yeah. We don't need. This is tanky Andy coming back trying to defend East Asia. He's <laughs> like America. The, the wire is just as capitalist oh as God. this as this K drama. But the question I wanted to ask before we like equivocate is, um, <laughs> is is just why do you think so much of these K dramas and. Tammy, if you know the answer to this, please tell us. Like, why are so many of these K dramas built on these ideas of small businesses going up against the big businesses? And that's the that's the that's sort of the um, you know that's the drama that you follow. I don't have any insight into this. I mean, I feel like obviously the Korean economy is set up around a Tibo like conglomerate, you know, econ- yeah. state sort of quasi state um, conglomerates and. So I do think there's a little bit of this urge of like, oh, we can overcome that through sheer hard work and determination. And then I think at a deeper level, there's probably some, you know, kind of reflection, obviously, on the recent histories of poverty, war and dictatorship that feed into this, again, this sort of idea of a bootstraps type thing. It feels a little different than a kind of American bootstraps fantasy that you see in American soap operas. Um, In American soap operas, the rich poor thing doesn't exist as much. It's more just like rich people. Yeah, in soap operas for sure. But I do think that it bears some similarities probably to the post-World War II American uh, movie culture, right? Which was Probably, yeah. Strictly chaste 
and very, very about like, you know, small guy going against the big yeah. guy. Yeah. And the way that they're going to yeah. take them down is they're going to be as rich as them. Right. And honest though. Right. Cause they, it still does have a whole thing around like virtue, like the, the big conglomerate food owner in Ituan class is a very Trumpian figure who will lie and cheat his way. Yeah. And our yeah, hero, yeah, yeah, yeah. our hero would never do that. And Tammy, I think this is where maybe you have, uh, you know, or at least I'm going to throw out like a crazy take that I don't <laughs> necessarily believe in, nor do I know if it's right or not. But, you know, it does seem like a lot of the angst in Korea is not really the working class versus the upper class, right? Like it's not like the wealthiest people uh, against the poorest people, which is what a film like, I don't know, Parasite would show. But that the actual political angst is the middle class versus, you know, the people who go to like uh the people who go to like Seoul National University or something like that, like the, you know, like the, the, the outrage over, um, like Pakin has, for example, her shaman, right. Was that, uh, that was that she had gotten her daughter into like the prestigious women's university through corruption basically. Right. And that's not really like a working class versus a upper class type of concern, or even in this case, the president, it's like the middle class versus the upper class. And that's what seemed to be animating this particular drama for me. And I wanted to know if that's something that's more, you know, that that is part of the cultural production there, which is that mm. this is like a middle class working family. And yeah. yet there's like a barrier to ascending to the upper, the highest class. What do you think about that? Hmm. I mean, Korea, <laughs> my, you want me to throw, throw in my yeah. guess? Korea, South Korea is made it right it's like a first world economy first world society um uh so what you would might assume would be like more let's say like working class versus capitalist class type literature and art would have been more present like in the 70s through perhaps the 90s with like the 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 97 asian financial crisis right but what's going on at least in japan i don't know if korea is in the same way but i think this is true of taiwan and hong kong and these other tiger miracle economies from the late 20th century is they got rich they were like leading the charge in terms of asia getting rich and then they've more or less been kind of stagnant for a few decades um and i think that there's a lot of on the one hand more or less average person's standard quality of life is not bad right it's about as good as a person in the u.s but on the other hand there's a sense of like we're not moving in we're not moving up any further china has a big you know is a big factor in that the fact that the global economy is kind of in stasis is a big factor. Um, I know Jay, you've watched Terrace House, right? Like, yeah, it's a different different situation than mm-hmm. South Korea, but like Terrace House for me is just like um, all about the just like fledgling kind of not not working class, but just sort of like in between middle class. That's just like going from temporary job to temporary job all the time, and that's kind of the the that's kind of the insight. Like, it's all the the show is about like finding love and all that stuff. But most of the show is really about the anxiety of being a 20 something who doesn't have like a long-term career. Right. Yeah. It's about, it's about people who are comfortable and attractive and have no idea what to do with themselves and really can't foresee a particularly great future for themselves. So then you have like Subasa who is in like the (laughs) new, in the, the, the one that they did in the mountains. The name, I can't remember the name, but the one up near like the, she's like, uh, she's like a, 
She's like a hockey player. Karizawa. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's just like... And then and then there's the old snowboarder and they all keep making fun of it because you're yeah, too yeah. old to be a professional snowboarder. And then the rest okay. of them have no idea what to do with their lives. And you're right. Yeah. 80% of the show is them just talking about, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. That's true. Yeah. How um, do the kids who are working at like Family Mart, like what is their financial situation? They're living with their parents? Like when they're not in the house. Yeah, a lot of the characters are like models who like it just oh, is revealed right, that they okay. also work part time at Seven Eleven. You know, yeah, and that's yeah. just like a detail in the background. And me like, and one oh. of my friends uh, have uh, done. Uh, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but me and one of my friends like did a whole like uh, deep dive into every single person basically who was on Terrace House who claimed to be a model to see if they actually had a modeling career. <laughs> like Shion on that season, who I absolutely hated, but yeah, you know, Xion, he was yeah. in that he was in that nice couple and he's like, I'm a model. It's like you look like a giant fucking dork. You know, like how are you a model? <laughs> but yeah, half of them are like people who have done like one Instagram, you know, like for yeah. like one one clothing company or something like that. But you know, that's very similar to New York City right now. You know, I bet that yeah. you could make Terrace House I in New York City true. with a bunch of kids who feel a ton of malaise. But in Asia it does seem true. Um, I don't know though. I, I there's there are other dramas, and there's definitely still a lot of music and literature that focuses on working class and poor people's narratives in Korea. Right. So I don't want to watch those out. Yeah, I will recommend on Netflix another drama where they do actually have poor and working class people in it called Dear My Friends. Dear My Friends, which is like yeah. amazing. Okay, um, most of the protagonists are over sixty, <laughs> but. It's really good and feels very modern also. Um, the only yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. The only K-drama I've watched, because uh, my wife who likes these finally convinced me to watch one. I think it's called Adushi, which is like Adushi, everyone, I guess. Yeah. But mm-hmm. about, it has the dad from Parasite in it. Okay. And, and the premise, again, is just like a, uh, uh, like a middle manager whose career is going nowhere yeah. in a giant corporation. And the evil boss is like the, the, is the boss, right? Who's like, you know. Yeah conniving and doing illegal things and blaming the evil blaming the innocent naive earnest noble but kind of going on a dead-end career yeah uh, protagonist right so again it's like the it's the uh it's the not the tragedy but just sort of like the battle song of like the the middle class dad right who who Mm -hmm. feels i guess the who feels like the weight of the of inequality or not inequality like a stagnant economy let's say yeah 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 that's what that's what itaewon um one class is like at the beginning which is that the dad who ends up dying in the first I, i'm not giving i'm not spoiling anything you know because it's the first <laughs> fucking episode <laughs> but and also i already spoiled it so it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> but um the dad who dies is it's the same thing andy where you know he is he has to be so deferential to the chairman and he and but his dream is to start his own restaurant but he can't right because he's trapped in this in this job and he doesn't feel like he can leave and pursue his dream and so he's just sort of they show him being kind of humiliated over and over again in the first episode yeah. because he's a middle manager type who, you know, goes out right. and you know he's like a sales type of person. I find that to be really prevalent, though, in, in a lot of the Korean media right now. And I don't know. I don't know if I could, like I just keep thinking about because, you know, like the Ask a Korean guy, I remember I was talking to him about the protests and he was like, I think that some of the framing that you're discussing because I was discussing it is wrong and i don't know if i agree with him or not but i will say that he said this and it stuck in my head because i generally trust his opinion on most things you know like he's Mm. very knowledgeable (laughs) don't make that face (laughs) we're his friend but he he was saying that you know that the 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 spark of this was was of of the protest was that 
was that corruption where the kid got into this elite school, right? That it wasn't really, people are okay with like some form of shamanism. Like, you know, everybody in Korea, somebody in their family is into this sort of stuff, right? Like it's not that uncommon, but that it was that it wasn't, it wasn't really the way that it was framed and that it was this uprising of like the, of the underclass to try and fight against like the Chebol system or something like that. So I, okay. So my beef with that, I mean, I, I agree that the, one of the main triggers and one of the origin points was Iwa Women's University because of the scandal. And I like give so much props to like the feminist protester college students who were like originating this, but it was really like an uprising about this Hawaii ferry disaster and yeah. so much other stuff that built up. It wasn't just about, you know, Pukkun as like advisor woman. And that like the unions mobilized like super strong. Like there were a lot of poor and working but class isn't people that, involved. So. Wasn't the ferries, the scandal of the ferry was that it was like government oversight because of corruption also? Totally. Yeah. Right. So but it, I it just is corruption. Mean, like, oh yeah, no, totally. But I just, I, I, that, but because of that and because most of the kids who died in that ferry accident were from poor families. Hmm. Like, this was actually not just a movement of, like, middle-class people with, like, sort of economic grievances, but it was it was yeah. more widespread than that. But, yeah, I mean, I think Ask a Korean, yes, of course, like, the Iwa kind of, it was a pivot moment, but I think that many more people were involved than just, like, middle-class people. But corruption in general, I mean, this kind of, I, was, I was kind of thinking about this, you know, in our context with, like, the way, for instance, Warren versus Sanders would frame what's wrong with this country. And people would point out when Warren would talk about, like, corruption that's kind of a way to say like the system is basically fine except for the corrupt uh like bad bad apples right um as opposed to like the system itself is the problem uh so corruption tends to be i think uh, corruption you know you can talk about the different classes that get involved in these different scandals but i think you could i'd be open to the argument that corruption itself is a little bit of a like anti or it's kind of falls short i will say that when i went to korea to cover these protests um that I did talk to a lot of people on the street, you know, like man on the street type of reporting. And all of them said something about how this was finally the time for the people to rise up. Right. For sure. And so, and none of them were like, oh, it's because of like EY University and, you know, I can't get my kids right. in. It wasn't like this sort of like very bourgeois like conversation that we have around college admissions here where you know, upper middle class people are horrified that billionaires get to put their kids into these elite institutions or that they're horrified that legacies get their kids into Harvard. But they don't, you know, they don't argue we should just abolish Harvard, you know, which is, I think, the de facto stance of this podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, between it's that the lines like, is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. But that, that, uh, that's why I, you know, I. I will say that that whole like college admission scandal thing with the kids who are buying their way onto like the USC crew team and you know the Harvard Fed yeah. team and stuff like that, I found it a to be hysterical. Like I thought that was the number one thing that you should do is you should laugh very hard on it. But secondly, you know, like the people were getting all outraged about it. I really didn't understand what they were arguing. You know, it's basically like yeah. oh, elite school admissions are good, but you and they're so good in fact that we must like stop. We must protect the sanctity of elite school admissions. <laughs> yeah. Like come on, fuck you. Like it's it, you don't have to. Be 
be like a you don't have to be like part of like the revolutionary communist party or something like that to like argue that that maybe these elite school ambitions are rotten to the fucking core you know and that there's no <laughs> amount of reform that's going to happen and that unless you like put in hard quotas for every type of person which you know you shouldn't do anyway because like who really cares why would you want an uh, elite institution anyway you know uh, none of this stuff is going to be solved but it was I don't know I, I do I do see a I do see a hint of that throughout the K dramas that I watched. That's what I, I think. That's yeah. my end point. Yeah. I think they've gotten much is, more it bourgeois. Is the, it is yeah. the anger of the middle class that can't access the upper class, right? And that sort of that does make yeah. sense, Andy, economically with what you were saying, which I think is a very astute point. Which is like, you know, these are stagnant economies mostly, and have been yeah. for like twenty years or so. I, I think Tammy's correct that Korea, maybe and maybe Japan are like the economies that are most organized around large private public you know partnerships like chebol or keiratsu in japan that mm-hmm. are just like towering over the rest of the economy in a way that's not true like in taiwan and hong kong as far as i can tell yes i and think that's, that's right so there's like yeah. really identifiable like types of the of these types of corporations yeah and i think i mean so i i do think there have been in the past more very poor and very rich love stories in the dramas and now yep. it does seem to be kind of so, so <laughs> moving into more middle class. My wife is always telling me about, like, you, you, like, you should watch this drama because it has a rich and a poor class story. And I'm like, 30 episodes, I can't do it. But, uh, <laughs> Wait, is that, is, that, is that the thing that you know so get your interest? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> Economic appeal. To this is what I'm talking about. It's, not like, this, this it's literally Liam every single one. I, I know that you love Liam Neeson. It's like, this, this has class conflict in it, Andy. <laughs> you would love it. <laughs> Why, Tammy, what is your opinion about why that is um, like written written into every story? Hmm. Or is, is it a Korea, is it Korea specific, or maybe it's not Korea specific at all? I, yeah, I think maybe it's not. You know, it's basically like a princess story, right? Yeah. It's an archetypal fairy tale, and then because of the particular social context in which it arises, it's you know has like a tipa kind of component, or like a rags to yeah. riches, or rural to urban narrative but again all of that stuff is less so now yeah like we always say what you know like koreans say more and more like there isn't such a thing as the countryside anymore yeah yeah Yeah. you know because it's kind of all yeah is the thing to is the thing to compare to like u.s daytime soap operas or like u.s prestige television oh definitely soap operas so yeah i think exactly and i think like the telenovelas do something similar okay you know that makes sense they're even yeah. sort of shot like like uh, U.S. soap operas where they're not really lighting the shots very well, and they're kind of using, you know, like it it looks it looks a little bit like kind of like you look at it and you're like, whoa, that doesn't look like a TV show because <laughs> it's shot in like a certain resolution that that doesn't, you know, it's not sort of a nice soft filmic effect that you get shooting at a certain frame rate. Like this is like shot like it looks like a you know, like a camcorder that you would hook up yeah. to a TV or something like that. <laughs> but look, the last thing I'll say about this is that the show is very good. You know, I find it to be really interesting. And Tammy, like you said, I, I think that it had certain progressive notes in it that I wasn't expecting. For example, yeah. they have a trans character in it, right? Which, you know, is shocking given how not progressive Korea is in terms of For LGBTQ sure. stuff, right? And um, and, and yeah, there's like a lot of stuff about race. Like you see black faces in mm-hmm. this K-drama totally, you know, I've never seen a black face in a K-drama. Well, I guess I have, but you know, like, well, and no. he's Korean, like, yeah, 
they weren't yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is yeah. like an African worker, you know. So I really yeah, liked yeah, that. or like like a you know like or a rapper or, or like a hip hop like exactly, <laughs> yeah, which is another big trope that they have. Is there? Yeah. Um, do they have a backstory like his his parents are like United States soldier or something like that? No. Well, the, do, do they not explain it? No, no I haven't do, gotten. But the, you're not there oh, yet, right? I'm not. There I won't yet. spoil it. His dad is full Korean. Uh, is what I'll say. Um, Andy, you have to watch it. I want to talk to you about it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, it's, I'll make my wife very happy. It's really good. Because I yeah, started watching it at like, like it. I think it was like 1030 last night. And I was like, I'm going to watch till 1130 and then I'm going to bed. And then it was like, and this never happens to me because I actually am not like a person who gets, I don't, I don't actually like television. And so I don't get, I don't have a binge effect. Like I never want to binge anything. My general reaction to when I see eight episodes <laughs> of something, I'm like, absolutely not. You know, like that seems... <laughs> That seems like so many hours. I don't care, you know. And the the like the whatever like the cliffhangers never work because they're just like I, you know, <laughs> find out what happens next. Like I don't care. <laughs> it just didn't work. I'm sorry. <laughs> but oh this God. one worked totally for some reason. I don't know why. I really enjoyed it. All right, um, let's move to the next topic. Uh, I'm working on our seamless our seamless inner our seamless segues here. We should just have music so I don't have to like keep trying to figure we it out. We can use the Itaewon class soundtrack. <laughs> Maybe we should swap out the uh, sound. Maybe we should swap <laughs> out the, uh, the the theme music for today. Um, okay, well, this is a totally different subject, but it's something that, you know, is the one thing I think that is the connective thread in all of our podcasts, and uh, which is about sort of, you know, how the left organized itself around protest and the ways in which certain projects and experiments work and don't work and how we should talk about it, right? Because I think that is something that people on the left haven't really quite figured out. Like, what do you do when everybody's like, the protests are great, and then you see like a video of something that you don't think is great. There was an article that came out in Harper's a couple weeks ago. It's by this writer named Wes Enzina, and it's about what happened at the Sheraton Hotel in Minneapolis during the George Floyd protests. And I wanted to talk about this this week because, first of all, I thought it was a fantastic article. Like It was really well written. It was really well reported. The backstory of this is that some organizers in Minnesota, um, you know, who are abolitionists, came out and they took over. A, they made an agreement with the owner of this hotel, this Sheraton that was failing, like a Sheraton hotel in Minneapolis. And what they tried to do is they tried to make essentially like a homeless encampment, right? Like where homeless people could live in the hotel during the protests. And so the narrative starts out with this, with this young black guy who is in Minneapolis, he's living in his car and he's down at the protests. He, you know, he feels like he's been harassed by the police as well, but somebody torches his car, all the stuff that he owns in the world is gone. Right. So then he goes and moves into the Sheraton and the writer also goes after the second week of the of the Sheraton opening for this, and he goes and he works in the Sheraton, right? And it's not like the sort of annoying Gonzo type of piece. Like the actual reporting of him working in there is actually quite illuminating. And needless to say, like things fall apart, right? Like yeah. uh, a lot of drug overdoses happen in the hotel. Um, there's a lot of fighting. There's a prostitution ring that is running out of there. There are reports of sexual assault. And basically, in the end, everybody agrees that, like, you know, that this didn't really work out. I want to read uh, one part of it, which I think is, like, pretty relevant. It's at the end. Um, and this is a question that Wes is posing, which I think we should talk about, right? 
in the end, the fight fizzled out. This is a fight that happened in the lobby, but I wonder, or in this parking lot. But I wondered what Steve or anyone else would have done if the violence had uh, <clears throat> escalated even further, as it was clear the volunteers didn't have the ability or willpower to intervene. Did abolition really mean letting people fight one another? Were the activists just so overwhelmed that they were giving up? Or did they simply have to set the boundaries of their uh, experiment somewhere, deciding that the parking lot for uh, <clears throat> that the parking lot was beyond the reach of their ideals? The answer was probably a little bit of all of these. I was sympathetic. He goes on, and then in the end he says, it wasn't that the fight showed that, the, uh, that we needed the police or that the abolitionists were naive idealists. They didn't want a thousand Sheratons. They wanted a world in which no Sheratons were needed. But it did show that the abolitionists weren't sure, yet sure what to do when the actions of some threatened the well-being of others. In a sense, it was an instance of the problem that the activists faced more broadly. What to do when their uh, experiment's failure was in many ways guaranteed precisely because the problems it aimed to alleviate were so great. What to do in the indeterminate space between reality and utopia. I, I think that's a beautifully written way of posing this question. And yeah, it's one that I think that deft. we should talk about on the show. So Tammy, what, what, what did you think of Wes's piece? I thought it was really well done. Um, this is a little bit of an aside, <clears throat> but about a decade ago, I did a story in Louisville about a place called Hotel Louisville that is a hotel, kind of like a low rent hotel in a nice building that is staffed by people who are in recovery Mm-hmm. And they live there. And so the place is both like a recovery center and a hotel where they are like basically unpaid workers, <laughs> okay. but they are given housing there. Yeah. So I stayed there for like a week. Anyway, this kind of reminded me of some of that because they, in the ideal of that hotel, also were kind of trying to build a kind of utopia or a kind of place where you could solve your own problems and be kind of like, I don't know, like you you were self-sufficient, you know, in like a very literal way. Um there was part of Wes's article in the middle, I think, where a Native American service provider meets with the abolitionist. Do you guys remember yeah. this part? And he yeah. basically decides not to get involved because yeah. he kind of anticipates some of these problems yeah. um, and sort of feels like there needs to be more like expertise or kind of like technocracy or like sensitivity to like the people who are coming in. Um, what I appreciated about the abolitionist response Bonds, and they were all at different levels was that some of them were like we're kind of ready for the chaos yeah like it wasn't a naive project and i think like the writer did a really good job of exploring all of that and not really giving anybody a break yeah but also like trying to see them in their best and most well-intentioned light so i thought i thought that came across really well it was challenging read uh annie what'd you think what, does uh, it, did this put a damper on your plans to to, <laughs> to to me i mean it was obviously it was great it was, it was a really good read um it raised a lot of questions for me and i think like in that passage you just read read out loud when they say it's not they don't want a thousand sheratons they want no sheratons that really i mean i'm not maybe it's good yeah. to you all what i think what it's raising is this there's a difference between like wanting to solve what they see as a problem versus like what is the actual future vision and I'm not clear what their future vision is of no Sheratons, and I don't know the abolitionist literature, so I'm not clear on that. But I think overall, there was that part that raised a question for me. And, you know, the way it ends, I don't know if you want to spoil it, or if you can spoil a, you know, a feature story, but it talks about how um, a lot of the people who are in the hotel 
are more or less like lifelong, you know, homeless or un- unhoused people. And right. that, that kind of seems to be the sort of horizon that they're looking at uh, into the foreseeable future. So that kind of made me think like long-term, like this isn't just about, you know, police. I mean, obviously the spark mm-hmm. is it, but the other kind of major issue is like, how does a society have a homeless cl- a class of people who are homeless and how and like we would tend to think like a place like United States would be one that kind of overcomes that and would always be able to like provide basic services for people um, so that they so that the people are not homeless. So what is the long term vision? What would be a long term vision be to eliminate it? And reading the article, I kind of thought a lot a little bit about, you know, the critiques of abolitionism this summer were something like what you're really calling for is the from a very cynical perspective, right, that they're calling for the replacement of state-based services, in this case, police, with a private version of it. And is that necessarily going to solve it better? Uh, because I think thinking about like, what does the, what is the Sheridan trying to offer? It was, it sort of sounds like it's like a voluntaristic privatized version of what they criticize as a, you know, ineffective and violent and not good state version of policing and prisons. Right. Um, well, I don't know if it's prisons, but like a home, like, shelters, like right? a home a shelter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so which leads to the question of like, what is like the way forward for like transitioning out of that? Right. Or like, why would a private volunteer, cause it's a volunteer based, right. This whole, the Sheraton was based upon like donations and volunteers. Um, yeah. what, what, what is like the I mean, way I, forward? I think, well, there are tons of problems with shelters. Right. And I think that part of the, the reason why they wanted to create this thing is to see what would happen if the carceral state or if the if police power was not involved in any of this at all, right? Because mm-hmm. there's always a there's always a element of policing in any type of social services, like the, right. it's state violence necessary for it yeah. to operate. And so I think that was the core issue. And I think that the core question is not how do we solve. I don't think it was necessarily like how do we solve homelessness in America, right? Like, I think that the people would be somewhat cognizant that you can't fully eradicate homelessness in America. You can provide much better mental health services, for example, like in San Francisco. You can provide housing. You can, you know, comment. If you want to get extreme about it, you can, like, comment to your hotels and stuff like that and, you know, have people live there with, like, social workers and people who can help them. Um, And that none of that infrastructure exists right now. And that um, I think that the... The other question, which you know, I think is the one that Wes asked, which is a little bit more, you know, 30,000 feet in the sky, is like, is all like, and it also has to do with the protests in general, which is just that, like, does this sort of signal that people don't feel like the, that they can be involved in politics in a meaningful sort of way? Mm-hmm. You know, that they can't have the state work for them, that they can't reform the state, that they can't reform civic institutions, that they can't even reform, like, the social worker you know, workforce, like the social worker industry, like none of this stuff is ever going to work. I think this is, you know, the general belief system right. of the people who came up with this and they wanted to create something new with the ideas that they had going. And then in the end, very quickly, what they realized is that the reason why all those, infra- those sort of structures that they don't like that exist in all these things happen is because if they don't exist, then this happens. You know, like you have chaos and you have like people ODing on the stairs like you know like say what you will about like drug abolition and stuff it's not good for to have people overdosing on the stairs you know like not good you know having people yeah uh having people like die in rooms is not good right like it's not a good thing and 
the question that they're asking is, I think, is if our ideas don't work, you know, and the state doesn't work, then like what really is there? You know, like I, I think that that's sort of the question at the heart of this thing, which right. is can people be involved in politics in any sort of meaningful way? And the other question I think is like, you know, I mean, we saw this with Chaz, right, in Seattle with the Capitol mm-hmm. Autonomous Zone, which ended with like, what, four people being killed mm. in there? Um, yeah. You know, like we we see, I saw it personally at Standing Rock, you know, like that's what I was reminded of, like when I read this mm. piece, which was that mm-hmm. when at, towards the end of Standing Rock, when you went there, it was a, it, like the vast majority of it was a, not the vast majority, but the large por- portion of it was a homeless encampment. You right. know, people had come up there for free food. And um, you're not supposed to bring drugs in, but they had drugs in, right? Because there are people who are drug, they have drug addictions. That caused all sorts of problems. There are all sorts of stories about sexual assaults that were happening all throughout Standing Rock. Right. You know, they would catch the people who were doing the sexual assaults and they wouldn't, pro- they, there's nothing to do to prosecute them. So they would just put them on a bus and they would go back and some of them, or they would leave. And then some of them would come right back in. You know, they would sneak right back into camp. Um, now, I'm not saying any of this to like reflect negatively on Standing Rock, but this is the reality of what was happening there. The only reason I know that was because I was there, you know, like I went there and I saw it and I talked to people. That's what they're talking about. Now, some of it is very overblown, right? Like every single one of these things, like there's always reports of like X, Y and Z happening and there's like a rapist in camp and all this sort of stuff. Right. Like a lot of this stuff is real, but this is like a sort of theme that goes through all these sort of utopian projects. Yeah. Um, I think that like, uh, I don't know, I, I just found it fascinating because i think that as we progress we're gonna have more and more of these utopian type of projects that come out because i think people feel much more disenfranchised they can't participate in politics electoral politics i mean i don't know how many people like after this bernie election are totally off on the left or totally off electoral politics i think a lot right Mm -hmm. not a majority but a lot right like some percentage of them are like what are they going to do like uh after the after george floyd protests you know thousand people are going to be radicalized and they're going to be trying projects like this. I think the question that Wes is asking here, which I find to be a very salient one is like, you know, like, uh, what happens when things go wrong? Cause they're going to yeah. always go wrong. You know, yeah. like, h- how do we talk about it when they go wrong? Do we just pretend they didn't, that nothing went wrong? I don't see these activists though, as, I mean, I think he's asking the right questions, but I think the activists in practice are looking at a different set of questions, which is not, I don't I don't see them as having given up on the state and and political action, lowercase p political action. I see them as wanting to conduct an experiment that I guess like in the parlance of Occupy Wall Street is like a prefigurative politics, right? To like imagine and to stretch and to try and to know that it it probably will fail. Like I don't think all these people were, you know, thinking this is going to last forever either. And I mean, in the case of Occupy and Standing Rock and even like the brief encampment at City Hall this time around in New York, I mean, those also stand in the imagination for things moving forward and have a sort of igniting value that way. You know, like I was just on the on the reservation near Missoula this past weekend and Standing Rock came up a bunch with like young people, just like what it stood for, what it like represented in the imagination of like young native people. So I think like, despite all those failures, it actually can like compel people to be more political. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I'm just trying to talk about it on its own terms. Right. Like where I think that standing rock, you know, I think that it was 
amazing to be there. I felt moved every single day I was there. I very much thought that they shouldn't be building that pipeline. You know, I was there on the day when they announced that they had temporarily stopped it. Mm-hmm. I think the most That's happy cool. I've been in years, you know, and uh, there's a huge party. It's fucking awesome, you know, and uh, and then, you know, two weeks later, they build the stup- they build the pipeline yeah. because the election happens. And then uh, and then and Bush and well, not Bush Trump takes over. And then everything devolves, right? Mm -hmm. And in the end, we went there the last days where they were bulldozing it out back there, and it was sad, you know? I mean, it was exactly what Wes is describing in this. It's just people who have real drug problems, real mental health problems, sticking to the land, you know, staying there because they have nowhere else to go, and just being bulldozed out, right? And they're just living in, like, heaps of trash, and everything is being bulldozed out. And I don't know, like, I guess I... reason why I'm asking this is just like it a question is that I think that Wes is asking here is just like is this just like always going to be the outcome you know like yeah. are all of these utopian questions all these sort of like utopian kind of abolitionist type of projects are they always going to end in this and b is there any value for them outside of the symbolic value that you brought up Tammy well, I guess, I mean, I, I won't say much more. I'll let Andy talk, but I'm not talking about it just as symbol, but as like a practice so that people who were actually living through it and even living through the failure could still like actually have that be useful to them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my reaction, I know this is probably an intellectual reaction. I completely admire these people for doing this. It's not, not something I've ever done before, but. Just to add on to what you've you never, all You've never commandeered a shirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah, Very <exactly>. specific. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, like listening to, reading the article, I kind of had this thought, like, wouldn't it just be better if the government did this, right? But then, you know, yeah. a better government than our government. And I got thinking, like, in Scandinavia, they must have a government that does this in a much better way. <laughs> uh, but I do kind of have this question about, you know, there's a sort of anarchist, micro-scale, micro-politics yeah. impulse. Yeah. I'm just gonna throw this out there though, but like you could you one person could see anarchist politics, nineteenth century commune style politics. You could also say like, doesn't that have an overlap with sort of twenty first century neoliberal sort of entrepreneur, distrust the state, do things yourself type politics, which in a way is compatible with um sort of conservative discourses that the state doesn't work, the state is inefficient. Let's just let's yeah. you know All Silicon Valley is, is what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so that's a narrative Silicon Valley. So I wonder they even I have mean, their own bunkers and shit. Yeah. Right? So I mean you all have been on the front lines more. Do you feel like there's some of these people participate that in this with that type of at bring that type of attitude as opposed to some sort of like Bakunian, Prudonian nineteenth century, like mutual aid type attitude? Mm. No, I, th- I, I don't think so. But Tammy, yeah, Jones, I yeah. think the reason that doesn't work is because the state is privatized. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about the state violence in homeless shelters, in welfare state provision, like we're talking about a network of subcontracts that are all right. private. So I don't I think like the dichotomy is not as clear, you know, and so I think mm-hmm. in these people's critiques, it's not that they are saying, oh, the state has failed and that we can't do it. I mean, part of it actually is that neoliberalism has failed. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to set up something that like actually is like modeling a kind of mini state, essentially <laughs> a kind of, you know, mini state welfareism. Right. So right. I don't think they have that in mind that it's so, like, oh, we can actually do this better, like in right. a DIY fashion. So the question would be, it sounds like what you're saying, Tammy, is 
their ultimate goal would be something like having a better, having a, not a co-optation, but let's say like a um, integration with a better version of the state. I think definitely a state that works for them, for that yeah, works I, for I mean, us. I, yeah. Don't you feel like it, the core of that would be some sort of revolutionary movement, you know, that would go beyond even like the Sanders campaign that would sure. really reform the, the government? <laughs> like, I think that they would totally. understand that that was a prerequisite of it. And I think when he, they're saying they don't want any Sheratons to exist, that's what they're envisioning is they're envisioning a totally new state that yeah. actually yeah, takes okay. care of, of its people. Um, and, you know, like, I don't know, the, the second part of this, and I think this one is more, you know, personally relevant to us, which is just, um, I went down to the, uh, I told both of you guys about this, but, you know, I was, I do these wanderings around Berkeley because I'm so bored and I just got a bike. <laughs> and so I went to the revolutionary books here and it's like the Bob Avakian store. Right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I talked to the woman there. I loved her. She was like wonderful. She's like this sort of 70 year old Asian woman who had been part of, uh, you know, she'd been part of the Third World Liberation Front. She's still a revolutionary communist. She grew up, you know, in California, she's a Chinese American woman uh-huh. named Gina. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this thing where, those people lose all the time, right? Like that's, yeah. that's, that's what you sign up for. You understand. Totally. This is what I talked to Noel Ignatiev about too, you know, like, which is like, you're going to lose all the time. Yeah. Your life, when you think about the victories you've had, you've had no victories, right? <laughs> like zero. <laughs> um, and yet you keep going. And, you know, yeah. like I, it's interesting how I, I guess it, that used to be selected to, it used to be limited to a very small number of people, right? Like a very, very small number of people would be like Baba Vakin and, you know, in 1980 <laughs> and 1984 and 1998 and 1992 and 1996, 2000, 2004, every single time being like electoral politics, <laughs> so many sham, times. you know, <laughs> what we need is a revolution or overthrow the entire political system. Right. Um, to the point where it's like a joke, but now I actually think, and this is the thing, you know, this, I hinted at this before, but I, I do think that like more people feel this way now than mm. than have really, really in a long long time yeah i don't think that people believe that the government can work for them and i think mm. young people especially think that and i do think that that's why you know these types of things are popping up right now right and where they wouldn't have popped up at protests before before you would have like a mutual aid tent for sure you know you would have like people registering people to vote but now you actually have these things that are created and i do think that that's new i think part of it is because the protests are so big that they have space for things like this to create. But then you have to ask the question, why are the protests so big? You know, yeah. like, like, why are all these white people at these Black Lives Matter protests? Why is Portland going crazy for this long? Yeah, I do think it's because people feel like these young people feel like they have no ability to access politics at all. I actually kind of, I kind of, I bet Tammy's on my side too. I bet I'm actually kind of reading the moment in the opposite direction that the success or the relative success of Bernie and, and Warren, however you want to measure that, leads me to think like things like Occupy um, and sort of extra political action are actually changing, you know, I don't want to use the Overton window, but whatever, th- a different metaphor, right? What the, the idea of what's possible. And I think I've become actually more invested, not in like the Democratic Party, right? But in the idea that a Bernie type, Bernie type candidates can win and perhaps overtake the Democratic Party and make it their own thing in a way that wasn't possible in the 90s or the 2000s. And I think that was made possible that's connected to these extra political activities uh, not just like running for office but also you know like protests and um you know um you know but i also kind of think the right the right wing thinks the same way too right like trump is not through the trump did not rise to power through the republican party he rose to power 
through yeah. gigantic rallies. Through the, the right has used the language of movement and grassroots for sure for decades now. So I think both I think both parties see themselves purely as a reflection of well, not that's not true. Parts of both parties see themselves as the voice of grassroots movements that are outside the party. And yeah. it's sort of the incumbents within the party who are just like kind of like holding on for dear life and trying to adopt as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. I actually kind of think that politics might actually be seen, people might see politics as more open than, than before because people like Trump and Bernie are not supposed to ever. Yeah, and like Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman and AOC yeah. and all the people yeah. who have won state legislature. What, what do you think, Tammy? Am I am I being too much of an <laughs> am I being too much of an anarchist here? No, do I, I understand. Well, t- tanky it up. <laughs> I'm torn because I feel totally disillusioned, especially this week. And yeah, I mean, I I hear you. I wonder about like Andy's students, like people that age, like how in the hell do they think they're going to engage the system? Because there is no good option. So I'm, I'm really sympathetic to that. But yeah, I do think I, I've been really moved by like the Bernie cohort. And like, we had Nikhil Sabal on the show, like all these people who like came out of that, you know, like that, that to me does present like a, a different path. Astra yeah. Taylor has talked about like, why she's against third partyism and feels like we should do a kind of Nikhil Savalian, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. left caucus type, you know, democratic politics. And I find her argument fairly convincing. Um, what's, what's the main reason not to? I mean, the main, I think the main reason is that it's not a good use of time and like things are really urgent. And we, if you are a committed organizer, you're always going to have a lowercase p campaign, political campaign alongside your capital P electoral politics. And that's good. And that's what you need to do anyway. So you build like this alternative society and like concept while you are voting for people who will at least push the boundaries of what a D can represent. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Jay, I think what you're getting at is like all time confidence in the Democratic Party is probably at all time low. Yeah, but that re- also reflects electoral politics generally right it's not like there's a surge of confidence in the green party or something like that (laughs) those two democratic parties right i think yeah in the progressive wing and i think there's like no energy in the biden wing which is obviously a problem for next well amongst amongst young people sure i mean i think that there's tons of energy amongst people who hate trump right who are like in their 40s and 50s middle class people or or you know like and black people in the South or people like, you know, like people who are not necessarily part of the young Bernie movement, I think are probably pretty energized right now. I think the, the, the two factors I see going forward, and this can be the last that we speak of this is that, and but I want your Ever. reactions to it <laughs> is I don't, I think it'll get worse because the economic future for these young people is so uncertain. Yeah. And I yeah. think that when you cannot figure out how the system is going to provide you a job, and a house and like social services when you think if I have to be out on the streets, the system will fail me as well, right? Which is what happens in Minnesota, happens here in Oakland, it happens in Berkeley, it happens in San Francisco, it happens all throughout this country where, you know, if, if you, like there are people, you know, within three miles of me down the street where they're living in RVs, you know, with families. These are not people who are mentally ill. These are not people who like, you know, are the quote unquote usual suspects in terms of of like housing insecurity these are these are families that used to have houses and now they don't um more and more people are going to be in that condition more people are going to be in that position 
And I think that the idea that we can perhaps create our own thing because all these people have known since like basically they were born as disappointment in government, I, I think it's going to spawn a ton of these sorts of utopian societies, right? Not to bring everything to Jonestown because I think don't think Jonestown <laughs> is the right analogy, but I don't think that it is the angst of of what we see in Korea, right? In the K-dramas, I mean. It's not a middle-class angst. Like, this is going to be something that is driven, I think, in large part by people who went to Brown or, like, Vassar or something like that. They're going to be the people who come up with the, who are going to go and, like, open up the Sheraton and stuff like that, right? But the actual, I think, <laughs> <Sorry>. movement, <laughs> the actual movement is going to be a lot different. And I do think that there are going to be people who are going to be suckered into, like, bullshit utopian things, right, mm-hmm. in the same way that... That, that Jim Jones suckered in a lot of people, right? Like there's going to be a lot of that and we're going to have to figure out a way to talk about it because a lot of it is going to be bad. A lot of it is going to be inspiring. Most of all of it I'm going to be on board with because, you know, like I, I've given up officially on the show. I've given up on all politics. You know, I'm now only about to, you know, my one talk with my one trip into revolutionary books is very, very, very uh, influential. And now I agree complete with Bob Avakian that, that although, although, although Bob Avakian did endorse Joe Biden. Did you see that? Yeah. What? Yeah. It was the first time he's ever for that. For our listeners who don't know who Bob Avakian is, wow. he's a. Uh, so he was part of the uh, new left and he's the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party, right? Like, I think that's the most succinct way that we can uh, describe it. He has him, a right? cult-like so, following. Um, he has a big following of very nice people, right? That are very smart and cool, Andy. <laughs> um, have have but, you been reading his autobiography yet? Yeah, yeah. How is it? Yeah. Uh, it's very entertaining. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah. Really? Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, don't you? Are you surprised? I don't know how you feel about Bob Avakian, which you know, but don't you think his autobiography at least would be extremely entertaining to read? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's true. Yeah, I'm sure. You, he has and if you live, and if any of our listeners live in Berkeley, it's like the mo- it's a great Berkeley book right? because he <laughs> he was part of the um, free speech movement on campus and all that sort of stuff at Sproul Hall or whatever. So um, I don't know. I, I just think that that we're gonna see more and more of this and. Um, I don't see how we don't. What yeah. do you think? Closing thoughts. Andy, Andy Lou, your thoughts. No, I mean, I think you're right. Like the 60s are kind of this big transitional moment. I think we're obviously living through one now. I don't know. I'm kind of like you. I'm kind of afraid of what's going to happen. Um, you know, like, uh, yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. Things, things seem to be falling apart right now. Um, and, and it would naturally produce all sorts of people trying to fill the spaces that used to be like provided by government or the political parties yeah. or local government. But um, I don't know. At the same time, it's like probably the Democratic Party or the left or the center left has never been more vulnerable than before, which I guess is bad because it could be taken over by the right, which we've talked about on this show a lot. But mm-hmm. it's also kind of created an opening for more mainstream versions of left politics. To be clear, I'm very in support mm-hmm. of communi- communes and like people doing <laughs> utopian projects. In fact, that's what I always, this is not at me being ironic at all. This is how I always envisioned my life going from the age of 19 onward. I thought I would live in some sort of experimental co- commune type living situation and like be involved in like crazy radical politics and do a lot of ayahuasca and peyote and you know, like, basically live on a, a different spiritual plane than everybody else. 
And, you know, I want to say there's still time for me. I'm only 40. <laughs> <laughs> I did spend some of my 20s doing a lot of that, but it was mostly embodied in, like, surfing every day. You know, <laughs> it's just like, I was, like, trying to be do it that way through, like, some sort of, like, physical activity. But I'm ready for it. I know it's going to be ugly, but I, I hope that this happens. Tammy, what about you? Are you ready for the, uh, are you ready for, are you ready for, 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 for good and bad Jonestowns across America? Uh. I'm, I'm like trying to think about how to divert all this energy into like unionization. <laughs> <laughs> but do you agree that the, uh, if, if you don't agree, just, you know, like, do you agree that this energy is there? Like, do you think that things are spiraling out to those, these types of solutions? I think, now? yeah, I think it's there. And I, that's why I'm like, no, I'm actually kind of serious about like how it's, this is an organizing, like a labor organizing project because it's, this is a labor question. It's a surplus labor question. And in the same way that, you know, a lot of anarchists and other people had dreams of like organizing unemployed people. Like that's basically what we need, like an unemployed people's union and underemployed people's union. Mm. And the reason I, I, I think that's a more promising route than communes, even though I do support the J King dropout commune or whatever it's called right now, um, is that I think people need organization and I think people need education. And I think, I think it's important to have like a stable base that you can come back to. I mean, is that your takeaway from the West article also, right? Like organization would help. I'm really into organization. So I th- yeah. yeah, I mean, I think like there definitely is a limit to like this form of these sorts of forms of mutual aid and yeah. communal activity. And um, I, I'm into like some level of like hierarchy and uh, yeah. I'll stop there before I sound like a crazy. Yeah, <laughs> like t- <laughs> Tammy's gone tanky too. Um, <laughs> I will say the, the the you know this is the you know at Standing Rock it was interesting and I I think that I want you both to respond to this as well. This will be our last truly last thing. At Standing Rock there was a lot of organization and there are a lot of rules, but the rules are mostly aesthetic. I don't know mm, if that makes yeah. sense. So there are things like. You need to uh, stand this far away when people are doing the traditional ceremonies, right? Which is a cultural rule that people were very excited to enforce, right? Because it's like a lot of white people, a lot of documentary filmmakers there, a lot of news crews (laughs) like myself. Um, And so then you have this sort of army of like young kids who go to Colorado college or something like that. And, you know, or it's not really burning man, but it's like people who would be part of the free cadet movement <laughs> 20 years ago are at standing rock yeah. and they're basically the cops. Right. But the only rules they want to enforce are those types of rules. Mm. So like in the mess hall lines, for example, like elder native women would be shuttled to the front of these long lines. And so you'd have like, you know, I don't know, just fucking like, you know, that, do you know that like uh, Steve Malcolm's song, Jenny and the S dog. Anyway, some of our listeners will understand this reference. So you have Jenny from Jenny and the S-Dog like, taking like a native elder and like walking her to the front of the line and like shoving people out of the way, you know, like, get out of the way. <laughs> and they're so proud to be doing this type of rule, yeah. like enforcing this type That's of rule. That's so funny. And I get a sense that maybe that is how a lot of these places go, right? Like that there are cops, but the cops are not actually doing any of the boring That's really work funny. of keeping, of like, creating organization and making sure things run they're doing all the cool jobs which are like <laughs> <laughs> shove you out of the way. 
I don't know. That's just my. That's just my. Oh like, my so for example, they had, like when I went, they had been they had been up and running for like four months, and nobody had designed like a toilet system. So we had these disgusting, overrunning porta potties everywhere. And then they brought in this guy mm. to like build this amazing like latrine system. But then it shut the camp shut down before he could actually build it. But I think that's what it is. Oh, right? Wow, people that's want an incredible s- metaphor. People want to build Sorry. tents. They want to like yeah. you know like go out and do all the cool stuff. But nobody wants to build a latrine system, right? And so. Um, Tammy, I agree with you that there should be somebody to build a latrine system and someone should enforce, like, you know, someone should like be in charge of cleaning up the camp and there doesn't need to be 80 volunteers shoving news crews out of the way to get like the elder women to the front of the, what do you think that impulse comes from for those people who are really just like getting off on like enforcing these, you know, what do you call the aesthetic? Oh, roles? cultural authenticity for sure. You know, okay. it's the access into into like how you know like this is the real native way like something people would talk all the time about you know yeah um and like this is what they want is a phrase that i heard all the time right like this is what like the this is what like such and stuff chief said i know because i was in a meeting in his tent like all this sort of stuff like that was like that was like the currency that should have been the currency in a lot of ways the rules they wanted to enforce were not the rules that needed to be enforced to make that thing work and not turn into what it what it uh you know what at its worst it became um even though i think overall it was like kind of remarkably well functioning right but the lines of people i would say to enforce the cool roles you know that were like doing the doing the work of like the authentic crew there (laughs) were much longer than the lines of people who were like putting toilet paper and bags and yeah. trying to haul it out of there which is always I mean, gonna I think be true. it's a desire to be seen it's a desire the to sanitation be department was not like did right. not have many volunteers there <laughs> <laughs> oh wait what was your question you, i mean do you feel like it's a desire to be seen desire to be have the spotlight on you as like the, the no i, I think or? it's just authenticity i think okay. it is as it is it is a good-hearted and and sincere and i've i've been this way in my life as well so i totally sympathize with these people is the desire for people who grew up in like sort of upper middle class middle class settings where they're so bored to access some sort of authentic life (laughs) and the way what is more authentic than standing rock right like nothing you can't think of something that's more authentic than standing rock so they go there and they want to immerse themselves in their lives and in that way they become sort of followers of it, right? And and they want to enforce the rules that make them feel closer to that type of authenticity. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, as like people shoving me out of the way yeah. all the time, you know, or being like, you're getting too close. Do you have a camera? You're not supposed to have a camera. And I was like, I'm going for a walk to the disgusting bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not going to take a picture of anything, but that was that was sort of those were that's what sort of the cops did. We actually did a police ride ride along um, at Standing Rock, which was fascinating because they had like patrols, like security patrols. Wow! And um, yeah, it was interesting. The guy was just saying all sorts of horrible stuff that had happened there, and he was like, oh "Yeah, we we can't really do anything about it because." Uh, we don't have any system to do anything about it. I'm not making an argument for cops, listeners, by the way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm We're just all saying. tankies now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, they had only brought in. They had only brought in the red guard. The, <laughs> all these problems. Right. We need discipline. But uh, yeah, it was difficult because um, because there is no organization at the top. 
um, that and then towards the end it became more difficult because people didn't know who was in charge mm. and then it became even more difficult because everybody was accusing everybody else of selling everybody else out oh, which man. is inevitably what happens so yeah um, yeah it was a it was a good lesson but what like I think that we should just say I think everyone should read this article and I think everyone should think about it I don't think you know I don't know yeah. I think it's one of the major questions that we have going forward um, and I hope you guys are right. I hope that we have re-energized political progressive left. And I hope that Bowman and uh, Cory Bush and all these victories will lead to more and more and more. And that Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib will become more powerful. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I'm going to grow some tomatoes and think about my <laughs> think about my commune. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank, uh, that's the end of our time. We're at one twenty right now, Tammy. We I think we zoomed through two topics now. We're like, we can probably get this down to like a manageable fast. length. We're getting faster. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, you can reach us. We have a lot. I think we're going to read a couple of listener questions next week. We've gotten again excellent listener questions. Mm-hmm. It's really our favorite part of the show. Is getting feedback from you guys and some of your questions are just. You know, I don't know the answer to them. I don't have any sort of answer. I just think about it. Like, yeah, I have no idea. The complicated question you've asked. But that's the type of question that we like to grapple with. So thank you for sending those. And uh, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us at ttsgpod on Twitter. Um, or you can message any of us individually on Twitter. Um, but yeah, until next week, we will see you soon. Ah, ah, ah.